Tonight we are continuing our series on the men of Matthew, and uh, if you recall, we, this, we're, we've been at it for a few weeks now. This is actually week number seven. Time just really flies, and uh, we've talked about a number of different men, uh, people like Herod. We've talked about the rich young ruler and talked about a number. Well, today we're going to be talking about one of the most infamous men in all of history, because we're going, to be, we're, we're going to be talking about the life and the, the, the tragic life and death of Judas Iscariot, uh, the, the man who wanted much. So turn in your Bible to Matthew 26. We're going to read verses beginning in verse 6, Matthew 26, if you want to look that up. This is what it says. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, whoever, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world... What she has done will also be told in memory of her. And, and before we read the, the, the next couple of verses, let me just say that uh, we, we're, we're, we'll read it a little bit later, but uh, that in the Gospel of John, <clears throat> we, are, we are told, this story is recorded there, and we're told in that accounting that the disciple who led this complaint, that, that the, the cry of indignation, that that was Judas Iscariot. So let's read on, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Tragic, tragic words. You know, there are a few names in history and in literature that are synonymous with betrayal and disloyalty. Names like Benedict Arnold. Uh, Tokyo Rose, uh, or if you're, if you're a student of Shakespeare, you have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern who, who took bribes to murder Hamlet, or at least to attempt to murder Hamlet. And there's Cassius and Brutus who assassinated Julius Caesar. However, the reality is none of these can possibly compare to the name Judas Iscariot. It's a name that, that has come to mean a, a synonym for betrayal. If you call someone a Judas, people know exactly what you're talking about. In fact, throughout literature, references to Judas Iscariot are so much more common than we can imagine. I heard of a man, he was a native-born Chinese who, was a, who is now a Christian missionary. He was a Communist Party official in mainland China, and he was actually working on a Ph.D. in Western literature, and English literature, and he kept running into many, many references uh, to, to Judas Iscariot, and, and he, without any b biblical background, he didn't understand who Judas was, and so he just, he just couldn't understand what this was about. So he had to go to the Communist Party headquarters to check out a Bible in order to look up the references to Judas Iscariot. And it, he, he tells that, that, the, that when he got the Bible, is interesting, he, he said that the Bible was actually kept in the pornography section of the Communist Party headquarters library. 
And he took the Bible from the shelf, and in his research on the life and the personality of Judas Iscariot, he was born again in the basement of the Communist Party headquarters library in southeast China. So even, even Judas and his betrayal, his story can be used by God. But, but, the, but the name of Judas, Judas Iscariot, uh, pervades the pages of literature. But, but so often, because we've heard it so much, we, I think we fail to comprehend the real depth of the horror of his deeds. So let's, let's ask ourselves a few questions about Judas Iscariot. The first question that springs to my mind is, was, was Judas always corrupt? I mean, was, was he particularly evil somehow in the core of his being and Jesus just somehow missed it? Or did, or did Jesus just pass it over? Or, or did Jesus deliberately recruit a man who was thoroughly and totally reprobate in order to fulfill the prophecies that had been given? Well... We have, we have no reason to, to think so. In the early days of the disciples' earthly journeys with Jesus, there is no reference whatsoever to indicate that, it, that Judas Iscariot was singled out among the others as being any different than they were. And, and so you have these 12, and these are 12 men that were with Jesus in the most intimate relationship. They were together day and night. There's no indication he was any different than, than them. Than them. In, in fact, you can even go a step further because it's, it's almost a biblical cer certainty that Judas Iscariot was used in supernatural miracle ministry. It's almost a certainty because he would have been among the 70 that Jesus sent out. And you remember when he sent them out, they came back and they, they were amazed because they said, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So, so he would have been among the 70 that, that cast out demons and, and the lame walked and the blind saw and deaf heard and miracles were worked uh, uh, evidently from, from all accounts, through, even through the ministry of Judas Iscariot, no, no less than the other 11. So there's no reason to think that he was any different than any of the others. Se secondly, we, we don't have any reason to believe that he was corrupt from the beginning because he was trusted by the other disciples. He, he, he was made, as we find it in other places in Scripture, we, he was made the keeper of the community purse of the, this little apostolic band. Now, now, certainly a man with a uh, temptation toward greed and, and the things of money might try to insinuate himself into that position. However, we, these, were, these were the disciples of Jesus. These were men of of at least some level of discernment, not to mention the fact that Jesus himself was there. And unless somehow or another there was some witness of trust and confidence of Judas, he probably wouldn't have been given the purse. He, he, they wouldn't have given him that responsibility if they didn't trust him. So how then, if that's true, if he was not evil from the beginning, if he was not bad from the beginning, if he was just like the other disciples, how then... Can we begin to comprehend what would bring Judas Iscariot from the point where he was breaking bread on a daily basis with the Christ of the ages for three years? Not, not just a week or a month or even several months, but for three years he walked with Jesus, he talked with Jesus, he saw the miracles performed by Jesus, he saw the resurrection of dead. I mean, Judas was right there in the cemetery when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So how does Judas move from that moment to the moment where for 30 pieces of silver he betrays his Lord and his master? Well, I think it begins with this. Judas 
heard, well, let's just say, Judas heard all that the other disciples heard. Therefore, the lack of hearing must not have been the problem. The problem, I believe, began in Judas's inability to personally apply the word to his life. I, I want to share just a thought with you about your partnership in preaching. Because it's a partner, preaching is a partnership. I, I work hard at, at preaching and teaching. I, I do, I, I study, I pray, I prepare. I really work hard at preaching. Uh, it may not show, but you don't know how bad I'd be if I didn't work at it. So, um, but, uh, but, but, I, but I, I, I really work at it, but I believe that that's only half of the, of the partnership. That's only half of the preaching event. There, there's no way that I can really preach the message that you need to hear and there's no way that I can apply it to your life. The, the other end of the partnership must be an, an energetic application by your own spirit, saying to yourself, speak to me, God. I would rather hear a word of rebuke from your lips than rivers of praise from the lips of men. You, you, you must come into every service Every worship service, every Bible study, every Sunday school class, whether it's me or somebody else that's speaking, and you're saying to yourself in that moment, you're speaking to God saying, come on, God, speak to me, speak to me. And I believe this is where most people fail in the preaching event, so to speak. See, there is a, there is a mystery element to preaching. It's a mystery element that I have never fully understood, I cannot fully comprehend, there is a mystery in it. But when, it, when a large crowd gathers, or it doesn't even have to be a large crowd, but when a crowd, crowd gathers in a church and, and, and the pastor preaches a sermon, the, the amazing thing is, is that in a certain way, every one of those people hear a different sermon. And it's always amazed me. They all hear different things. I hear people come up to me, you know, they'll come up to me afterwards and they say, they'll say, you know, you were talking about this and, and they'll repeat something and they'll say, this is what God was, you know, I heard you saying, God was saying through you. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I, I didn't, I didn't know I said any of that. You know, I, I didn't really. I, I told a story a couple of weeks ago. I don't remember which week it was, but it was during this series of studies, I think, but uh, uh, about the man who came up to Dr. Rutland after he preached at a church and you remember the man came up to him and, and, he, and the man said to him, you know, I was just really blessed with that illustration that you used. And he described the illustration and how it applied to his life that, that, and talked about the illustration from the sermon. But Dr. Rutland, he, he just could not remember that illustration at all. He, he couldn't remember it. So he, he went and got the recording of the message from the media office of the church. And he thought to himself, you know, maybe I'm just losing my mind and I'm using illustrations that I can't even remember. So he, so he got the recording and he listened to it, listened to it all the way through, and he never used that illustration. You, you understand what I'm saying? It was not in the sermon. What had happened? Well, what had happened was that the mystery element of preaching by a partnership on both ends had happened. And God had been so able, able to so access that man's computer, his mind, his heart, that God had been able to bring forth up out of him an illustration of the sermon that had application to that man's life. So, so that in essence, what was happening was that man was hearing a better sermon than Dr. Rutland was preaching. You, you understand what I'm saying? And, and I mean, that happens. I've seen that sort of thing happens and, and I'd love to take credit for it, but I can't take credit for it when somebody comes up and says, man, God really said this to me. And I'm like, 
Well, I'm glad he did because I didn't say that to you. <laughs> it, but, but what happened to Judas was that somehow or another, all of those things that happened around Judas, but it happened extra personally, outside of Judas. There was this lack of the ability to apply what he was hearing into his life. The, the, the resurrection of Lazarus, it was out there. He saw it. And you know, oh, that was wonderful. Looky there, look at that. That was amazing a miracle. Look at there, there's another, there's a person over there that's healed. Look at that, there's a demon-possessed person set free. And, and, and the fact is, even the miraculous ministry that flowed through his own life didn't reach his innermost being. Listen to this. There is nothing quite so frightening as a person who can be used miraculously by God and not be changed by the experience. Somehow or another, Judas not only heard and saw and witnessed, but he partook of the supernatural ministry, and that had little or no effect on the inside of Judas. You know, a man was uh, preaching revival service at a, at a church, and in one of the evening services, he, he felt inclined to preach about the delivering power of Christ. And he talked about various kinds of spirits that can take hold in a church and flow through a church. And in the message, it wasn't about demon possession or anything like that. It was about spirits that can function in the body of Christ, that can hamper in a church's growth and a church's effectiveness. And the church is sometimes not even sensitive to it. So he talked about things like a murmuring spirit or a complaining spirit or a gossiping spirit or spirit of jealousy, things like that. Well, after the service was done, the preacher was standing at the front of the building in the, in the altar area. He was just standing there t talking with the pastor. And as they were talking, this elderly, elderly lady just walked by. And as she passed by, the, the evangelist just naturally, just out of, you know, kindness and just common decency, he sort of just put his hand out to, to give her a handshake. And, and the woman just grasped his hand so firmly and so warmly. And, and she said, oh, that was a wonderful sermon. She said, now, now that's what I like to hear, a real sermon on holiness. She said, thank you so much. And he said, well, well, thank you and thank God. I hope it was useful. And she said, oh, it was, it was great. And she turned and walked away. And as that man turned back to the pastor, he looked at the pastor. And the pastor was just kind of standing there shaking his head. And, and he said, what's the, what's the matter, pastor? And the pastor said, well, that woman is the meanest woman I've ever known in my life. He said, she is absolutely ripping this congregation in half. She is a murmuring, complaining person. I mean, she's as mean as a rattlesnake. Now, I've seen the same type of thing in my ministry. I've seen people who were so spiritual and yet at the same time they just couldn't see how that they were, their gossip was destroying things in the church and was causing division. They couldn't see it. And, and I see those kind of things and I hear stories like this and I think to myself, you know, how can it be that a woman who is causing division in the church can absolutely, absolutely respond so positively to a sermon that really ought to have just rung her bell. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it should have just popped her between the eyes. That woman should have come to the pre preacher and fallen into his arms and said, it's me, it's me, you're talking to me, I hear this, this just nailed me, you've really pegged me tonight. 
And instead she said, oh, thank God, what a wonderful sermon. I want to begin to think about those kinds of things that happen to us on a continual basis and on a, at a very close level. And then it begins, to me at least, to become a little, at least a little less shocking that a guy like Judas Iscariot could be that close to Jesus himself and just not seem to be able to hear the phone ring. You know, hearing the gospel is simply not a sufficient safeguard against our tendency to harden our heart against it. Listen, John Wesley Harden. Anybody heard that name? You know who John Wesley Harden was? He was one of the cruelest and most merciless killers in the, in the West, of the Western frontier. Did you know he was the son of a Methodist preacher? That was back in the day when Methodists preached a message of holiness. Frank and Jesse James, we know them, notorious outlaws, killers. They were sons of a Baptist preacher. In fact, now listen, listen to this. The, the more you hear and know about the gospel, the higher your responsibility is to allow the Holy Spirit to apply it to your own life. What did Jesus say? To, to him who has been given much, much is required, much is expected. Well, Judas, I believe, he failed to accept the responsibility of what it meant to be in close proximity with Jesus. The, the closer you are with Christ, the closer, I'm just talking about in proximity. I'm not talking about even, you know, relationship or obedience, but the closer you are to the Jesus event, the closest, closer you are to, to, to that moment where he reveals himself, the, the greater the opportunity you have to move with him and then you don't, then the sharper and the more dramatic and the more desperate and the more devastating is your fall. Several years ago, there was a uh, young pastor. He was the, uh, actually the assistant pastor at a rather large church in Georgia. And he, was, he, he initiated a conversation with an older minister friend of his, a, a man whom he looked up to and mentor in certain ways to him. And, and he, he said that, he told this older minister, he said that there was a group of people in that large church who wanted this young pastor to break away from the church and form another church in town. Now, and the senior pastor was not for it. Uh, he said, this, the senior pastor doesn't want me to do it. The church is in the middle of a building program. But, but then the young pastor said that the, but these people are, are really pressing me to take several hundred members and go elsewhere and start a church. And, and he looked at the older pastor and said, what do you think I ought to do? Well, the older minister said, don't, don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. He said, stay away from it. It is patently disloyal. And he explained to the young pastor that when you enter into a building program, you formulate your plans, you know, building plans, indebtedness plans, you formulate your plans based on a certain number of folks. And, and to take people who have sort of snuggled in under that ministry and find safety and security in it, and then to take control of those people and pull them out of the ministry, that, that he, he explained to him is selfish and disloyal. It's more about feeding your ego than it is about what God wants you to do. And he went through this whole thing. But, and the young pastor said, but this man, talking about the pastor, he said, this man is just not right with God. And the older minister said, well, if that's true, then you leave. Just leave. Go to Kansas and sell encyclopedias. You know, do, do anything, but don't do this. 
Don't do this. You'll, you'll regret it. Unfortunately, he wouldn't listen. He took the group and he started a new church. For two years, everything was fine. About the third year, it began to fall to pieces. And by the fifth year, it was gone. And that brother lost not only the church that he started, but he lost his ordination uh, in, in ministry. He, 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 his marriage was in serious trouble. He and his wife were not even living together. His very walk with Jesus was in a shambles. And he, and, and he never really got the things right with God. But I believe that the closer you get to hearing from God, the, the closer to the, to the event that you are, when you fall, the sharper the abyss and the more dramatic the cliff. I mean, think about it. The, the alcoholic man who comes in on, off the streets who had a, a, a sort of a brush with the gospel and he experiences the Lord, but he isn't able to hold on to it. You know, that's a sad thing. I feel sorry for that man and my heart goes out to that man. But and, and by saying that, I'm not excusing that. It doesn't mean he's going to heaven when he dies. But, but that collapse is not as devastating. It, it isn't as, as much of a desperate plunge off the cliff because the rise was barely a bump. It was just a, a blip on the screen in the context of his life. It's, it's tragic. Don't misunderstand me. But the person who ascends to the very heights and then falls... That is breathtakingly painful. We've seen it. Great men of God who fall. And the, the impact of that goes far beyond just the, the normal, you know, average Christian churchgoer when they fall. And that's, that's why, folks, I constantly say to myself, Hoskins, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Don't take anything for granted. Be careful. Pay attention. I mean, I mean, look where I am. I mean, uh, I, I'm here leading people. I'm preaching the, the word of God. I'm, I'm walking through these things and, 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 and God has given me this moment. And, and, and honestly, this is why I need your prayers more than you can possibly ever know. This is why every minister, every pastor needs your prayers. Because I believe the closer you are to the centrality of the power, the, bra the brighter the light, the greater the heat, the more dangerous it becomes and the more precipitous the fall from that place. It is absolutely disastrous. Now, think about this. We know how disastrous it is when someone of great influence in the Christian world falls. It if one were to become an apostle, if one were, were actually one of the 12, how devastating that would be. Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 disciples, just like John, just like Peter, just like any of them. To fall from that height is terrifying. It's, it's just too hor horrible to even think of. But how, how does that happen? Well, I think, in essence, Judas yielded to the subtlety of his own private agenda. I'll explain what I mean by that. You know, deception sneaks in, doesn't it? It, it, it comes in subtly. You know, I mean, I've always used the illustration that a man doesn't accidentally fall into adultery, for example. He doesn't go to get milk at the grocery store and come back and say, I don't know what happened. I just became an adulterer. Just, it's something that, that happens gradually over time. 
one compromise leads to another, which leads to another. That's what happens. It, it's, you know, the, the old serpent is not called the subtlest of all creatures for nothing. The, the vine sprouts in the tiniest crack, beginning as a little green shoot, and then it gradually spreads out, and it grips and chokes the life out of the surrounding plants around it. So, so turn, turn to John 12. I, I made reference to this earlier, but let's look at John 12, beginning in verse 3. It gives us uh, an insight into the decline of Judas Iscariot. John chapter 12, verse 3. Now, this is John's account uh, of the same story that we just read that we're looking at in our study from Matthew. John 12, 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, now, now look at this, see this. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, he yielded to the subtlety of his own private agenda. And he shielded it, and he, he, he framed it, with very religious and noble-sounding words. Satan's reasoning goes like this with Judas. Th this thing is probably not going anywhere anyway. I mean, this little ministry is probably not going to make it anyway. I may as well just get what I can out of it. Yeah, I may as well get something out of it. Jesus' ministry is obviously not going to go anywhere. He's not making very good decisions. It's, this, it, it's just not going to amount to a hill of beans. I may as well get something uh, for myself out of it. Now, it, it's been sneaking in on him all this time. Judas has been, has been holding the money, counting it, buying the, the groceries for that little group, going into town to buy bread, whatever he's doing. It, you know, but, you know, Judas, he didn't walk out with, a, with the money bag one day and then suddenly say, you know what, I tell you, I am so tired of being a disciple, I think I'll be a thief instead. It doesn't, doesn't happen that way. One day, he, he makes change at the bread counter and he, he takes the, the, the money and instead of putting it into the community bag, quite by accident, he, he drops it into his own private purse and he means to replace it later on, but a, a, a day passes and then another day and then a week passes and pretty soon it begins to feel comfortable. It doesn't bother him so much anymore and, and now he, he can't remember. Was it three uh, denarii or was it more? Was it less? And it just sort of just sits there and remains for a while and then it becomes 10 and then it becomes, you know, 100 and and, and, and then it's even more than that. And gradually he loses track of which purse is which and, until finally uh, things become so jumbled up that, for him that it's not even a matter of resisting temptation anymore because he's not even dealing with temptation. It's that, but over time it becomes part of the fabric of his decision making. Begins to inform the way he thinks, the way he reasons. Th this sneaks in. Watch, and if you pay attention, you can hear even your own thinking at times, ways in, in which you deceive yourself and self-interest begins to take hold. You know, you, you want a thing, but you're, but you're not honest about it. Husbands and wives deal with this all the time. You, you want a certain thing, 
you don't, but you don't have the nerve to, to say it straight out, but it just sort of seeps down into your subconscious and it takes hold and grows up and sprouts and fruit begins to blossom. And so, so then there comes this moment of decision in your life and, 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 and you know, where, where you say, well, we can do this, which seems to make sense, or we can do this other thing, which doesn't seem to make sense, except for the fact that this thing, the decision that doesn't seem to make sense on the surface it actually furthers my own private agenda toward what I want. So I press for, th for this decision that seems to be counterproductive. And all the while, my wife, who's not a blithering idiot, can see that this decision does not make sense. For, uh, a simple example would be, um, say a man has decided, this is a silly example. Probably I should have taken time to think of a better one, but... Say a man has come up with the idea and he's decided he needs to buy himself a bigger TV. And then comes a moment in time where there's, they have a choice to make and, and they say, well, can we, we, we need to do this. We need to take care of this. And if we do it, it's going to prepare us for the future with our finances. But if he does that, he's not going to have the money for his new TV. So all of a sudden he says, uh, very subtly, uh, giving into his own agenda, may not even fully see it himself. He says, no, let's do this other thing. Because he knows if he does, that's going to lead the pathway where he manipulates the situation to get what he wants. And in the middle of all that, you know, the wife says, wait a minute, this, this is not the right decision. This is not taking us where we want to go. Well, it's not taking us where we want to go, but it is fulfilling my agenda, but I'm not mentioning my agenda. It's just that it begins to inform my decision-making process. Is this making sense to anybody? It begins to sneak in on us. Now, that, the, that's one thing on the level of a relationship but it's a whole different thing at the level of an out-and-out out moral decision. I've seen it sneak into the, to, to men of the gospel and ruin ministries and ruin marriages and ruin relationships. I mean, how does it happen that a counselor, a godly counselor, falls into an affair with a woman with whom he's counseling? How many times have we heard that story? How does that happen? Well, he, he doesn't say to himself, you know, I, I'm just tired of being a disciple of Christ. I'm tired of doing things the right way. I think I'm just going to be an adulterer. It doesn't happen that way. What happens is that one evening after they've been counseling together for a number of, uh, for a, amount of a certain amount of time, one evening after church, he says, I, I wonder how she's doing. Well, I probably ought to just go by her house and check on her all the while repressing and suppressing the knowledge that he knows in his heart that her husband is out of town. He knows that, but he's been told that, but he actually tells himself that he doesn't know. So he arrives at the house and she says, oh, my, my husband's not here. And he says, oh, I knew that, but I just, I just must have forgotten. You know what? The Bible says that the human heart is deceitful above all things. And if you don't believe that yours is, you're setting yourself up for a disaster. That's why you have to guard your heart. You have to pay attention. And I know you may think this is a very cynical lesson, but I'm telling you, here's the truth. This may be shocking to some of you. But within each one of us, there lurks the capacity to be a Judas Iscariot. We must be constantly vigilant on guard, watching, 
making sure that the decisions we make are not furthering some secret agenda that is haunting the back alleys of our hearts. It's a constant struggle with every heart. And, and don't say to yourself, well, I, I could never do that. I, I'm not saying to myself, I could never do that. No, the problem is we could. Yes, we could. When, when we say, I could never be tempted with that, that's the moment when we're really in trouble. That's the moment where, the, where we're the most vulnerable we've ever been. Listen to this. Here's, here's Hoskins' law number three. And I just assigned that a random number. I really don't have a, number, a set of number of laws, but I just thought it sounded good. Hoskins' law number three. You ready for this? You're never more contemptible than when you think you're not temptable. Nice rhyme, huh? You're never more contemptible than when you think you're not temptable. Constantly be on your guard. Satan's reasoning is not God's reasoning. Satan's expediencies, the cry of the flesh, satisfy me. That's not part of God's plan. But first comes the compromise. And finally, that leads to the total breakdown of virtue in your life. Judas fell to dishonesty and disloyalty. He didn't begin there. Judas, Judas, Judas was saying, you know, here in this story that we just read, he's saying, Jesus, he's just not practical. Jesus is not practical. He, he won't make the hard decisions that will make a ministry go. We could have sold that stuff. We could have put the money in the purse, allowing this woman to, to walk in there and break open an alabaster box of expensive ointment and pour out that perfume. perfume. Well, well it's, it's fine. I mean, fill the whole house with the smell of perfume for a minute, but how long does that last? In fact... You know, if, if you think about it, it seems like Jesus is making this decision for the flesh to just to enjoy the smell of that perfume for the moment. But the hard decision should have been made. The perfume should have been sold and the money should have been put in the purse. Of course, it couldn't possibly have anything to do with the fact that he keeps the purse and he's been stealing out of the purse. You understand what I'm saying? It subtly sneaks in on us. And then Judas justifies his sin to himself. Did you see what, what it said back in Matthew 26, 8? It said, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Now we know from John, who was the disciple that was indignant? It was Judas. See, you can even be self-righteous in your own sin. You, you can even be self-righteous in your judgment of another person's act of worship. I mean, this, this woman was doing a wonderful, precious thing. She was just pouring out praise on Jesus is what she was doing. And, and, and he said, well, no, well, well, we, I would never allow that. You know, we, we would never allow her to build up our ego like that. We, we wouldn't allow her to anoint our feet with perfume like that. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, she's not applying this to my ego this is for my burial. And I, I have a feeling that when he said that, he was looking right straight into the eyes of Judas. You know, as, as we consider Judas's descent into dishonesty and disloyalty, and uh, dis, really disloyalty of the very worst kind, do you know the last thing that Jesus ever said to Judas? The last thing he ever said to him, Luke twenty two forty eight, 48. Judas, 
Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It's the last time Jesus spoke to Judas. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You know, you know Satan always works the same way. He, he just always seems to work the same way. Here's, the, here's the, the fact is, a man who loves you, a man who is right with God, right with you, who cares about you and cares about things of the kingdom, a man like that will come and he will tell you the truth. Right? You may not like it, but he will tell you the truth. You may accuse him of being a troublemaker. You may resent him for it. You may argue with him, but he'll come and tell you the truth. He'll say, this is the way it is. He'll come straight to you. But Judas Iscariot, he, he begins with political machinations, moving around, and he, he just sort of runs in and around. He's dealing with the high priest, and he's dealing with the dudes down at the temple. And, 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 but, but he does all of that, and then he shows up to see Jesus with the soldiers at his back in the night with the spears, with the swords. And, he, and when he gets to Jesus, he says, Master, and gives him a kiss. And Jesus says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? The worst kind of betrayal is the betrayal that cloaks itself as friendship, support, and affirmation. Jesus was not his master at that moment, yet he still called him master. He didn't love Jesus. If he had, would he be turning him over to the, to the Sanhedrin? Judas descended into the worst kind of dishonesty and disloyalty where he was lying not only to Jesus, but I think he was even lying to himself. How did this happen? I believe it happened because Judas, unwilling and unable to make application of the word to his life, yielding to the subtlety of his own private agenda, failing to accept the responsibility of what it meant to be in that close of proximity to Jesus, Judas gradually allowed his defenses against absolute satanic occupation to be shattered. In fact, we're told on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when Judas finally made that final decision, Jesus dipped the bread and, and said, the one I give this to, and he gave it to Judas, and he said, go do what you're going to do. And Judas got up and left. He made a decision. I'm going to follow through with it. When he made the final decision to move forward with his planned betrayal of Jesus, at that moment, John 13, 27 tells us that Satan entered Jesus, Judas. Satan entered Judas. Now, I don't know if this is saying that, that he was demon-possessed or, or just simply that he fully embraced the satanic agenda that the enemy had planted in, into his mind and he gave himself fully to it and therefore he gave himself fully to Satan's plan. You know, I mean, we know there is such a thing as demon possession. You can see it. You, you, it's obvious. You can go to, on a trip, you can go to Bombay, India somewhere and, and watch a demon-possessed man as he throws himself into the, into the dust on some street. You see it. It's obvious. And you say, oh, that's just horrible. But in a, in a way, the, the kind of demonic activity that comes when a person listens to Satan's lies and then begins to pursue his or her own selfish agenda, regardless of the price, regardless of who it's going to hurt, in a way that's even more horrible because it is far subtle, subtler. And oftentimes the person caught in the grip of the satanic agenda doesn't even know it, can't even see it. They, can't, they can even seem to be 
a loyal, devoted, loving follower of Christ. And when you reach that point, then comes the next step. Once that happens, it's almost inevitable. Nothing, it's not inevitable because the grace of Christ can intervene in any time, but it's almost inevitable that we, that we fall to the destruction and the despair of self-loathing combined with hopelessness. That's what happened to Judas. Judas Iscariot had, think about this, he had done nothing that Peter hadn't done. Not really. I mean, is it, is it nobler somehow to betray Jesus for cowardice than it is for money? Peter betrayed him just as plainly and, and just as clearly as Judas did. Peter said, I never knew him. Three times he denied him, and the last time he did it with a curse in, in his mouth, a curse on his lips. I never knew him. Peter betrayed Jesus with a curse on his lips. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss on his lips. What's the difference? Really, what's the difference? Betrayal is betrayal. Disloyalty is disloyalty. Dishonesty is dishonesty. The difference is this. Now, now listen to this. It's a very important distinction. The difference is that Peter's dishonesty, disloyalty, and betrayal was driven, motivated, and energized by the flesh. He was afraid in that one moment, and he yielded to an impulse of the heart, and, and, he, had, and he denied the Lord. But then, later on, sensing what he had done, with remorse that leads to repentance, and repentance that leads to regeneration, Peter was renewed, restored, and refreshed and he was brought back into a full relationship with Christ and into the fullness of apostolic ministry. What, what a wonderful, powerful story. What about Judas, though? Judas, driven by political machinations, a, a lust for money, a careful, premeditated betrayal of his Lord for cash on the barrelhead, and then finally seeing what he's done, holding the 30 pieces of silver in his hands, there's this dramatic moment where he runs back to the temple into the merciless arms of the cold-blooded satanic Sanhedrin and says, I don't want this money. I don't want this. Relieve me of this. And then in their sanctimonious, self-righteous way, they said, what have we to do with you? That's your problem. It's not our problem. He said, I can't stand this. I can't stand what I've done. Help me. And they said, no, you help yourself. And he throws the money down at their feet, runs out and hangs himself. Why? Because his remorse drives him to despair and destruction and self-loathing that, that, enter, that enters in beyond anything that he's ever even dared to think of or imagine until the, he reaches the point where he says to himself, somebody has to pay for this. I am a betrayer. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I betrayed my Lord and my master. I brought him to, uh, brought him to crucifixion and death. I, I don't deserve to live. And it drives him completely in, uh, insane. Listen, when the Bible says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, it is not kidding. It's not a joke. Every demon in hell was dancing and laughing while Judas kicked the chair out from underneath his own, own feet. But Peter, feeling the same remorse, the same sting in his own heart, falls down before the Lord in deep, 
deep remorse, crying out to God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. What if, if, if you'll think, what if Judas Iscariot had pressed his way through the crowd to the foot of the cross? What if he, pushing people aside, had, had gone and hurled, hurled himself into the mud at the foot of the cross and then looked up in the face of Jesus just at that moment where he heard Jesus praying the prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What if Judas had pushed his way through the crowd to the foot of the cross just at that moment and then he cried out, Jesus, Jesus, I repent, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I believe that you're the Son of God, the Christ of the ages. I believe that you're going to rise from the dead and I repent of my sins. Well, how many of you believe that Jesus would have said, no, no, I'm not forgiving you. I'm here because of you and I hope you go to hell over it. No, that, that's not Jesus, is it? I believe that Jesus might well have looked down from the cross and said, Judas, you have just changed forever the shape of the New Testament. Stand up and be healed. Go and sin no more. You're forgiven. Nevertheless, he was driven by his own despair and self-loathing and hatred to a point where he killed himself. His was the despair of complete godless remorse. Peter's remorse drove him to repentance and into the arms of Jesus. The destruction of Judas Iscariot, honestly, it ought to strike a very somber note in, in the heart of every single Christian. The only reason it doesn't is because we think we would never do that. But we need to pay attention. Every single Christian ought to, ought to say to himself when he hears the story of Judas, every single Christian ought to say, Oh God, whenever I sin, sting me, hurt me, wound me. Holy Spirit, quicken me. Let me feel it. Make me sensitive. Every time I'm operating in my, on my own selfish little agenda, every time my lips are loose, every time I gossip, every time I betray you, every time I deny you, every, just make it hurt me, God. Hurt, hurt me deeply. Let me cry. Let me weep. Let me drag myself to the foot of the cross and fall down on my knees and, and repent. Oh God, don't let it harden into cement. God, don't let it become that subtle encasement of the soul that allows me to be able to justify everything I do and feel self-righteous about it. The whole story of Judas, this whole thing, is so poignant for us. I'm going to close with this. If you begin to think about the things that Jesus said at various times, you know, you know, Jesus was very sensitive to the things going on around him, wasn't he? How many times did you read and he'd say, Jesus, knowing this, knowing their thoughts, knowing this. He, he was, Jesus was discerning. Don't you think that somewhere along the way that he began to feel Judas slip? Don't you think he began to feel a distance, a coldness there? However, Jesus is a gentleman, just like, just as the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He didn't just come up to him and say, and just jerk that bag out of Judas's hand and say, you can't keep that purse anymore, you're stealing coins, you thief, you. Instead, what I think probably was happening was that the, there were times when Jesus was preaching to the whole crowd 
And at certain moments he would turn and look to Judas and say something to him while he was actually speaking to the crowd. I've been thinking about things that, Judas, that Jesus said where his eyes might have locked, uh, locked on to Judas Iscariot. Think about when Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You must, you'll either love one and hate the other. You, you can't serve God and, and mammon. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve both of them. I believe Judas heard those. And I think at first those words stung Judas a little bit maybe. I believe there were times when he, when he heard Jesus teaching on these things that I believe there were times when he just, uh, just longed to rush over to Jesus and say, you're, you're talking to me. I, I know it. You're talking to me and I'm sorry. Here, take, the, take this bag. Take the money. Take everything. I don't, I don't want to lose my place with you. I don't want to lose my calling. I don't want to lose my anointing. Take it. Take it. Nothing could be worth this. I believe that at first there were times when Jesus said things like lay up for yourself treasures here, lay not up for yourself treasures here on earth. And while he's saying that, Judas had just been on a shopping trip in town and had pocketed some of the change and used the money for his own purposes. Jesus, discerning, knowing all thoughts, knowing all these things, looking not only into Judas's purse but into his soul, and he said, lay not up for yourselves treasures here on earth, but treasures in heaven where moths can't, can't eat it and where thieves don't break in and steal it. Don't you know that there were times when that went right straight through to Judas' soul? I believe there were. There were. I think there were probably moments where he wanted to say, oh, master, master, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. He, he'd seen Jesus read people's thoughts like a book. How did he think he could hide his heart from God for one moment? You know, David said, where can I go to flee from your presence? If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I rise to the, into the, to the uppermost stretches of the ionosphere, you're, you're there waiting for me. Yet somehow or another, it just, for Judas, it became easier and easier and easier to just turn his eyes away and to not really hear, to, to not really listen to what Jesus was saying. You know, after a while, it just didn't hurt as much anymore. Until he reached the point where he was able to do a cash on the barrel head deal for the betrayal of Jesus. It's horrifying. So I say to myself, what do I need to hear? What, what is God's word for us about the life and the tragic death of Judas Iscariot. Well, I believe God would, would say to us that he would say, tell them to listen to every word that I say in their innermost heart. To never once betray their conscience. To never once harden their hearts. To never once deaden their souls. Listen attentively. Hear. Don't lie to yourself. Obey instantly openly, energetically, enthusiastically be sensitive to the tiniest nudge of the Holy Spirit. That's what I believe God would say. Because if we don't pay attention, our hearts can harden in the same way that Judas's heart was hardened. You know, I really believe that God is calling his people to a more diligent holiness than ever before. 
I think we're going to see more attacks both upon and within the church than, than we've ever seen before. And, and, I, and if you think, think you've seen attacks in the past, I, I think I'm telling you, I, I think it's nothing compared to what the enemy is going to try to do. I believe that Satan is going to be lethally serious about attacking ministries, attacking Christians, attacking churches, and attacking your family. However, I believe that the greatest safeguard we have is that we must diligently apply ourselves to the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to take the Word of God and apply it to us. Listen carefully. Pay attention. Don't compromise in little ways because it's not really a little compromise. It leads you down a pathway of destruction. That's the story of Judas. That's the story of Judas. Let's pray together. Father, as we come into your presence, Lord, this is a, this is a very somber lesson for us. As we see a man that had at his fingertips the very kingdom of God. He was right there. He was in the middle of what you were doing. He had this amazing opportunity to, to be part of what you were doing, to redeem mankind, to change the world, and Lord, he lost it. He wasted it because he let his heart become hardened. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn from that. Help us, God, to never, ever say, that won't happen to me. That could never happen to me. Lord, help us not to be that arrogant, but help us to walk humbly in your presence to say, okay, if it happened to him, it can happen to me. I'm no better. I'm no stronger. I'm just as human as he, as he was. And if I don't pay attention, if I don't guard my heart, I could see my life destroyed. I could find myself in a place of despair and destruction instead of repentance and regeneration. So Jesus, I pray you'd help us. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that's begun to allow little compromises to come in, I pray, Lord, that today we would make a decision to say, Jesus Today, I'm all yours. I'm listening. I, I hear the message. I hear the lesson of Judas Iscariot. And Lord, I, I don't want to lose everything you have for me. So I surrender to you again. And I thank you for what you're going to do in our lives. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.